Chapter Ten of the Seven Secrets by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Ten, which puzzles the doctors. At the inquest held in the big upstairs room of the Star and Garter Hotel at Kewbridge, there was a crowded attendance. By this time, the public excitement had risen to fever heat. It had by some unaccountable means leaked out that at the post-mortem we had been puzzled. Therefore the mystery was much increased, and the papers that morning without exception gave prominence to the startling affair. The coroner, seated at the table at the head of the room, took the usual formal evidence of identification, writing down the depositions upon separate sheets of blue fool's cap. Samuel Short was the first witness of importance and those in the room listened breathlessly to the story of how his alarm clock had awakened him at two o'clock, how he had risen as usual and gone to his master's room, only to discover him dead. "'You noticed no sign of a struggle?' inquired the coroner, looking sharply up at the witness. "'None, sir. My master was lying on his side, and except for the stain of blood which attracted my attention, it looked as though he had died in his sleep and what did you do? I raised the alarm, answered Short, and then he went on to describe how he switched on the electric light, rushed downstairs, seized the knife hanging in the hall, opened one of the back doors, and rushed outside. And why did you do that, pray? asked the coroner, looking at him fixedly. I thought that someone might be lurking in the garden, the man responded, a trifle lamely. The solicitor of Mrs. Courtney's family, to whom she had sent asking him to be present on her behalf, rose at this juncture, and addressing the coroner said, "'I should like to put a question to the witness, sir. I represent the deceased's family.' "'As you wish,' replied the coroner. "'But do you consider such a course wise at this stage of the inquiry? There must be an adjournment.' He understood the coroner's objection, and, acquiescing, sat down. Nurse Kate and the cook were called, and afterwards Ethelwyn, who, dressed in black and wearing a veil, looked pale and fragile as she drew off her glove in order to take the oath. As she stood there our eyes met for an instant. Then she turned towards her questioner, bracing herself for the ordeal. "'When did you last see the deceased alive?' asked the coroner, after the usual formal inquiry as to her name and connection with the family." At ten o'clock in the evening, Dr. Boyd visited him and found him much better. After the doctor had gone, I went upstairs and found the nurse with him, giving him his medicine. He was still sitting before the fire. Was he in his usual spirits? Quite. What was the character of your conversation with him? I understand that Mrs. Courtney, your sister, was out at the time. Did he remark upon her absence? Yes. He said it was a wet night, and he hoped she would not take cold, for she was so careless of herself. The coroner bent to his paper and wrote down her reply. And you did not see him alive again? No. You entered the room after he was dead, I presume? No, I, I hadn't the courage, she faltered. They told me that he was dead, that he had been stabbed to the heart. Again the coroner bent to his writing. What, I wondered, would those present think if I produced the little piece of stained chenille 
which I kept wrapped in tissue paper and hidden in my fusee box. To them it, of course, seemed quite natural that a delicate woman should hesitate to view a murdered man. But if they knew of my discovery, they would detect that she was an admirable actress, that her horror of the death was feigned, and that she was not telling the truth. I, who knew her countenance so well, saw even through her veil how agitated she was and with what desperate resolve she was concealing the awful anxiety consuming her. One witness has told us that the deceased was very much afraid of burglars, observed the coroner. Had he ever spoken to you on the subject? Often, at his country home some years ago, a burglary was committed, and one of the burglars fired at him but missed. I think that unnerved him, for he always kept a loaded revolver in the drawer of a table beside his bed. In addition to this, he had electrical contrivances attached to the windows, so as to ring an alarm. "'But it appears they did not ring,' said the coroner quickly. "'They were out of order, the servants tell me. The bells had been silent for a fortnight or so.' "'It seems probable, then, that the murderer knew of that,' remarked Dr. Diplock, again writing with his scratchy quill. Turning to the solicitor, he asked, "'Have you any questions to put to the witness?' "'None,' was the response. And then the woman whom I had loved so fervently and well turned and reseated herself. She glanced across at me. Did she read my thoughts? Her glance was a glance of triumph. Medical evidence was next taken, Sir Bernard Ayton being the first witness. He gave his opinion in his habitual sharp, snappy voice, terse and to the point. In technical language he explained the disease from which his patient had been suffering, and then proceeded to describe the result of the post-mortem how the wound inside was eight times larger than the exterior incision. "'That seems very remarkable,' exclaimed the coroner, himself a surgeon of no mean repute, laying down his pen and regarding the physician with interest suddenly aroused. "'Have you ever seen a similar wound in your experience, Sir Bernard?' "'Never,' was the reply. "'My friends Dr. Boyd and Dr. Farmer were with me, and we are agreed that it is utterly impossible that the cardiac injuries I have described could have been caused by the external wound. Then how were they caused? asked the coroner. I cannot tell. There was no cross-examination. I followed merely corroborating what my chief had said. Then, after the police surgeon had given his evidence, Dr. Diplock turned to the twelve few tradesmen who had been summoned and sworn as jurymen, and addressing them said, I think, gentlemen, you have heard sufficient to show you that this is a more than usually serious case. There are certain elements both extraordinary and mysterious, and that being so I would suggest an adjournment in order that the police should be enabled to make further inquiries into the matter. The deceased was a gentleman whose philanthropy was probably well known to you all, and we must all therefore regret that he should have come to such a sudden and tragic end. You may, of course, come to a verdict today, if you wish, but I would strongly urge an adjournment until, say, this day, week. The jury conferred for a few moments, and after some whispering the foreman, a grocer at Kew Bridge, announced that his fellow jurymen acquiesced in the coroner's suggestion, and the public rose and slowly left, more puzzled than ever. Ambler Jevons had been present, sitting at the back of the room, 
and in order to avoid the others we lunched together at an obscure public house in Brentford on the opposite side of the Thames to Kew Gardens. It was the only place we could discover, save the hotel where the inquest had been held, and we had no desire to be interrupted, for during the inquiry he had passed me a scrap of paper upon which he had written an earnest request to see me alone afterwards. Therefore when I had put Ethelwyn into a cab and had bade farewell to Sir Bernard and received certain private instructions from him, we walked together into the narrow, rather dirty high street of Brentford, the county town of Middlesex. The inn we entered was close to a soapworks, the odor from which was not conducive to a good appetite, but we obtained a room to ourselves and ate our meal of cold beef almost in silence. "'I was up early this morning,' Ambler observed at last. "'I was at Kew at eight o'clock.' "'Why?' In the night an idea struck me, and when such ideas occur I always seek to put them promptly into action. What was the idea? I asked. I thought about that safe in the old man's bedroom, he replied, laying down his knife and fork and looking at me. What about it? There's surely nothing extraordinary in a man having a safe in his room. No, but there's something extraordinary in the key of that safe being missing, he said. Thorpe has apparently overlooked the point. Therefore this morning I went down to Kew, and finding only a constable in charge, I made a thorough search through the place. In the dead man's room I naturally expected to find it, and after nearly a couple of hours searching in every nook and every crack I succeeded. It was hidden in the mold of a small pot-fern standing in the corridor outside the room. You examined the safe, then? No, I didn't. There might be money and valuables within, and I had no right to open it without the presence of a witness. I've waited for you to accompany me. We'll go there after luncheon and examine its contents. But the executors might have something to say regarding such an action, I remarked. Executors be hanged. I saw them this morning, a couple of dry-as-dust old fossils, city men, I believe, who only think of house property and dividends. Our duty is to solve this mystery. The executors can have their turn, old chap, when we've finished. At present they haven't the key or any notion where it is. One of them mentioned it and said he supposed it was in the widow's possession. Well, I remarked, I must say that I don't half like the idea of turning out a safe without the presence of the executors. Police inquiries come before executors' inventories, he replied. They'll get their innings all in good time. The house is at present in the occupation of the police, and nobody therefore can disturb us. Have you told Thorpe? No, he's gone up to Scotland Yard to make his report. He'll probably be down again this afternoon. Let's finish and take the ferry across. Thus persuaded I drained my ale, and together we went down to the ferry, landing at Kew Gardens, and crossing them until we emerged by the unicorn gate, almost opposite the house. There were loiterers still outside, men, women, and children, who lounged in the vicinity staring blankly up at the drawn blinds. A constable in uniform admitted us. He had his lunch, a pot of beer, and some bread and cheese, which his wife had probably brought him on the dining-room table, and we had disturbed him with his mouthful. He was the same man whom Ambler Jevons had seen in the morning, and as we entered he saluted, saying, 
Inspector Thorpe has left a message for you, sir. He'll be back from the yard about half-past three, and would very much like to see you. Do you know why he wants to see me? It appears, sir, that one of the witnesses who gave evidence this morning is missing. Missing, he cried, pricking up his ears. Who's missing? The manservant, sir. My sergeant told me an hour ago that as soon as the man had given evidence he went out and was seen hurrying towards Gunnersbury Station. They believe he's absconded. I exchanged significant glances with my companion, but neither of us uttered a word. Ambler gave vent to his habitual grunt of dissatisfaction, and then led the way upstairs. The body had been removed from the room in which it had been found, and the bed was dismantled. When inside the apartment he turned to me calmly, saying, "'There seems something in Thorpe's theory regarding that fellow short, after all. If he has really absconded, it is an admission of guilt,' I remarked. "'Most certainly,' he replied. "'It's a suspicious circumstance in any case.' that he did not remain until the conclusion of the inquiry. We pulled the chest of drawers, a beautiful piece of old Sheridan, away from the door of the safe, and before placing the key in the lock my companion examined the exterior minutely. The key was partly rusted and appeared as though it had not been used for many months. Could it be that the assassin was in search of that key and had been unsuccessful? He showed me the artful manner in which it had been concealed. The small, hardy firm had been rooted up and stuck back again heedlessly into its pot. Certainly no one would ever have thought to search for a safe key there. The dampness of the mold had caused the rust, hence before we could open the iron door we were compelled to oil the key with some brilliantine which was discovered on the dead man's dressing-table. The interior, we found, was a kind of small, strong room, built of fine brick and lined with steel. It was filled with papers of all kinds, neatly arranged. We drew up a table, and the first packet my friend handed out was a substantial one of five-pound notes secured by an elastic band beneath which was a slip on which the amount was penciled. Securities of various sorts followed, and then large packets of parchment deeds which, on examination, we found related to his Devonshire property and his farms in Canada. "'Here's something,' cried Ambler at length, tossing across to me a small packet methodically tied with pink tape. The old boys love letters by the look of them. I undid the loop eagerly and opened the first letter. It was in a feminine hand and proved a curious, almost unintelligible communication. I glanced at the signature. My heart ceased its beating, and a sudden cry involuntarily escaped me, although next moment I saw that by it I had betrayed myself, for Ambler Jevons sprang to my side in an instant. But next instant I covered the signature with my hand, grasped the packet swift as thought, and turned upon him defiantly without uttering a word. End of chapter 10 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com